Welcome to the podcast program, Beyond Clinical Medicine, What They Don't Teach You in Residency. I'm Rob Strauss, Team Health's Chief Medical Training Officer, and this podcast is one of our series discussing opiates, the devastation of addiction, and in this discussion, what you can do about it. We've experienced addiction among our friends, our colleagues, our patients, and for some, ourselves. It's particularly frustrating for clinicians who may consider addiction a self-imposed disease, perhaps even thinking you're voluntarily taking the drug. Why should I prioritize your care when I have others here that may deserve my care? And I use the word deserve purposely because some clinicians have a superficial understanding of the disease and an approach that misses the opportunity to actually help. Today, I'll be speaking with a healthcare leader who has extensive knowledge about and experience managing addicted patients. Our guest is Randall Dabbs. Randall is one of Team Health's founder and is currently the president of practice development through which he provides substantial leadership to multiple programs that that support and improve clinical practice and well-being. He's also executive sponsor of the Advanced Practice Clinician Council and Germain to this discussion, Dr. Dabbs leads the Substance Use Disorder Workgroup. Randall, welcome. Thank you, Rob. I really appreciate the opportunity to get to share just a couple of my thoughts and things that I've learned really as chair of the, this work group. And I've learned so much from so many on the work group because we do have a number of really excellent experts on the work group who are also certified in addiction medicine, which really provides a great deal of information and support for those of us who do not have any particular training in the subject. Randall, you have demonstrated why you're one of my favorite guests because of your passion about all the things you do. And as I've mentioned, one of your responsibilities is the leader of the SUD work group. I'd like to start with why you've chosen that as a focus. Well, I think for all of us who have had any experience in emergency medicine, we have had years and years of difficulty dealing with the challenges of patients who have addiction. We've had very little to offer them. As you mentioned early on, it's it's aggravating, it's frustrating uh, for those of us who do not understand the disease. And I learned fairly soon that a day that involved multiple confrontations or discussions with patients with addiction really just wasted or just left me feeling with this emptiness. It's almost like my gas tank had been drained of its fuel because of all these things that I would deal with this patient and didn't really know how to manage their problem. And I became frustrated. Frustration leads with almost, as you might say, compassion, fatigue, or just burnout on dealing with these people. I, it's certainly something we can all re- relate to. As a result of that frustration, you, I guess you saw an opportunity to do something about it, not just for you, but for others and, and took on this responsibility. And I know that you've given a presentation about the five key things to know about dealing with patients with opioid crises. You've launched this concept under an educational platform that you call, If This Were Your Child. How and why did you come up with that title? Well, I think I learned from 
my other colleagues on the work group that the largest impediment to really adequately providing care for these patients is really the implicit bias that we all have toward them. It creates this, this problem of how we go about managing their, their patients. The stigma against people with addiction and why they continue to use, even in light of the destructive nature of the disease, it just creates anger, it creates frustration in all our clinicians. Uh, and instead of being concerned about really preventing and treating the disease, we make decisions that seem to be punitive mm -hmm. uh, against these people, which is contrary to what we should be doing. So only when I really started to look at these individuals through the eyes of say a mother or a father, as though they were my child, did I understand that they deserve to be treated with the same respect and dignity as every other patient in, in the emergency department? So yeah, Reno, I, I, I get it when you put it that way. Uh, unless we personalize the patients, we actually distance them. So describe to me how the, the stigma of addiction interferes with the care of these patients. Well, I think when patients feel or know that the very people who are in charge of taking care of them actually have these preconceived negative feelings toward them and their disease, what happens is they tend to have a lower self-esteem. And when that happens, they don't seek treatment. They don't stay in treatment. And their problem just gets worse. They're feeling of isolation and it snowballs. And again, problems just, just uh, again, become worse for them. So the very people that they come to for help actually look down upon them and act in a punishing way. Can you describe how a patient might sense a caregiver's disapproval? Yeah, I don't think it is very difficult, but can, you, we're not the first clinician they've seen that's had a certain facial look, mm -hmm. uh, a certain tone, a certain negative thought about why they're there. And you know, like I know, because we've experienced it many times, we think the reason the patient's there is to try to uh, manipulate me to give them more pain medicine. And when we approach them that way to say, look, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You're not getting any of the Percocet. You're not getting any more Vicodin. And we have this negative sense without really exploring why they're there or talking to them about you know, some other way of treating their problem versus just giving them more pain pills. I think that it, it doesn't take long for them to say, this guy is really doesn't care about me and he only wants me to get out of his hair and get out of his emergency department. And um, so it creates, a, it just creates a barrier between you and the patient. There's, they turn off and you're turned off and the, the, the visit's not going to go very well from that point forward. Thanks, Randall. That's, that's really understandable. So if your first point is stigma, I noticed that your second point intensely focuses on fentanyl as the primary offending agent. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. There are so many opioids that patients can be and are addicted to. And throughout years, you know, we've dealt with this prescription opioid crisis that occurred when physicians were managing pain, really with giving too many prescription opioids. And then patients obviously would oftentimes get on heroin 
which is a street drug. Certainly, once you start injecting drugs, all kinds of other problems come into play. But this new synthetic opioid called fentanyl, everybody's heard about it. It's in all the papers. It's on TV. It has had this astronomical rise to the number one cause of all opioid overdose deaths. Think about it, Rob. In 2010, there were only 5,000 deaths due to fentanyl. Now that's that seems like a lot, but when you compare it to what happened 10 years later in 2020, 2021, we had 70,000 people in the United States who died from a fentanyl overdose. That's 75% of all of the opioid deaths uh, last year. And that happened at a time when heroin and prescription drug overdose deaths actually have leveled off. They've kind of stayed the same, whereas fentanyl have just skyrocketed to the top. And that's because illicitly manufactured fentanyl is so dirt cheap to make. It is ultra, ultra potent. It's easy to make, easy to mix, and easy to use. And a person can think they're taking just a Vicodin pill, something that's pressed as a pill, where actually it contains a lethal dose of fentanyl. One pill can kill if it has an adequate amount of fentanyl, unlike almost any other drug that's out there. So it's an incredible rise to the top. Wow. Well, cheap to make, easy to make, easy to make look like another medication, and certainly no quality control is involved. And it's such a strong potent. It's like, a, you know, 50 to 100 times more potent, you know, than a Vicodin or than morphine. That's why it kills so readily. Incredibly dangerous. So patients with an opioid use disorder don't just stop because they've seen you, no matter how compelling as a clinician. And you're probably pretty convincing, but the addiction has the upper hand here. So the addicted patients continue to use, I imagine, not necessarily just to get high, but as I've heard you describe, to prevent the horrific withdrawal symptoms. Okay, Randall, so why do you emphasize that in your teaching? Well, Robert, if you don't understand the pathophysiology of addiction, you cannot treat it correctly. We tend to blame the patient for continuing to use, thinking they just want to score another high. So we say, why can't you just stop? I mean, why can't you just uh, quit? And, you know, and if you don't, you'll just get what you deserve. Uh, because if you're just seeking to get high, why don't you just say, I, I don't want to get high anymore. Stop it and everything will be okay. So we, as their clinician, we get frustrated with them. We get angry at them when actually we don't understand the disease. So instead of really trying to get high, they're just trying not to get darn sick or dope sick. The fear they have of experiencing these agonizing withdrawal symptoms is really the driving force behind them refusing to quit. And it's, it's our ability to substitute maybe a, a, a better drug or a better way for them not to experience withdrawal symptoms mm -hmm. that gives them a chance for recovery versus just saying, get out of my emergency room and stop taking heroin or fentanyl. Interesting, particularly in light of the fact that fentanyl so available and inexpensive. Randall, symptoms that occur with withdrawal. Could you just briefly go over that? 
I will because I think those knowing those symptoms are important for us to help recognize a patient with addiction who has some withdrawal symptoms that's in front of us in the healthcare environment. We use something called the COWS, COWS scale. That's the clinical opioid withdrawal scale or the score. Mm-hmm. And those are 10 things. But if you just think about a patient in front of you that seems to be cramping, abdominal cramping, or is that's it's kind of balled up in a ball on the table with his knees brought up to them because they're having some abdominal cramps. That's common. You know, having this goose flesh or goose pumps, bumps that you, we talk about that sweating, you know, um, they're the, um, the, the, the dilated pupils are again, a common thing. Tachycardia, I think we all know are common. And it just really these, uh, this miserable bone, deep bone aches, it would be like flu on steroids. I mean, it's, it's that kind. And when I've talked to people with that, you know, they would rather just about kill themselves than to go through with those, those symptoms. And that's how, that's how bad it is. And if you haven't had that, and I haven't had, you know, withdrawal symptoms, I, I really can't appreciate the difficulty that, that they have as they're going through withdrawal. As you describe it, it certainly sounds understandable why somebody with a substance use disorder would want to avoid those terrible symptoms. So your fourth point of focus is teaching our clinicians about a tool called SBIRT. Share with us what SBIRT is and why do you and others use it? Well, you, you can't treat addiction, you know, unless you can diagnose it. And if you don't know how to ask the right questions, then you're not going to get the right answers. So SBIRT or S-B-I-R-T gives us this simple three-step way really to remember these key questions or elements of a patient interaction. The S is simply how to screen and kind of how to know what to say to the patient in the kind of a non-judgmental way to get them to be honest with you because they know you care about them. You're not just seeking to punish them. That's the S. The B-I is to briefly intervene if you diagnose it, you know, how to do emotional, uh, motivational interviewing to, to get more information about what's going on with their addiction. That's the BI. And then the RT is once you have a diagnosis or you, you think they have a diagnosis, that really is getting them referred to treatment if they're ready for treatment. Not every patient is, obviously. But if you sense that they do, you have to approach them as that way and say, would you like to get into treatment or try to get off this? And if they say, I do, then you have the ability to work with them and hand off that patient. We always talk about a warm or a hot handoff. You can't say, well, just leave the department and call these 20 numbers and see if you can get an appointment with an outpatient treatment clinic in the next week or two. That's not going to work because if they're having to go through withdrawal symptoms, it's unlikely that for them to go out start making calls and then go through withdrawal symptoms and in a week, you know, get into a treatment clinic. That doesn't work very well. So SBIRT, which is screening, briefly intervene and refer to treatment, makes it a little easier for us as clinicians to be able to manage that patient, give that patient some hope. And it's been proven to work because it, other than that, it's not, it's not very easy to approach a patient with addiction and know how to ask the right questions to get the right answers. Sounds like a fabulous tool and a way to enter the discussion. So your fifth and final management strategy relates to access to buprenorphine or brand name Suboxone. 
Tell us about it and the types of programs out there to help patients get access to it. Well, access to buprenorphine or buprenorphine plus naloxone equals suboxone. So I'll use suboxone. It's a trade name, but it's used interchangeably with, you know, the one of the medications for the disease. It really is the sine qua non, I guess, for being able to get these patients headed in the right direction. And the problem is that very few clinicians have the ability to prescribe suboxone because we don't have this X waiver. An X waiver is an additional number that you have on your prescription, which allows you have to have this waiver, this X number to put on your prescriptions if you're going to prescribe suboxone. Otherwise, you cannot do that. You can administer it in the emergency department. You can give them a film tab, put it on their tongue, but you can't write them a prescription unless they have the X waiver. We know that being able to get people on Suboxone as soon as possible actually improves their ability to get into recovery and stay in recovery, their mortality and morbidity in six months or a year, if they stay on Suboxone treatment is much, much better. So we know it works. The problem is that only 25% of the people who need access to Suboxone have access. And that's because there's so few of us that have the X waiver. So we see a patient in the department and then we may give them a film tab in the department or not. And we send them out maybe with some drugs to help them with, you know, withdrawal like clonidine or Finnergan or something for their cramps, et cetera. But that's not really sufficient without being able to give them suboxone. Now it, you know, and for us as clinicians, it really doesn't take anything except a 10-minute online procedure. It's called a notice of intent to really fill out some forms. And then you're able to get your X waiver. And it allows us to treat at least 30 patients at a time who have an opioid use disorder under our care. That's 30. Well, you know, in the ER, we never have 30 people at one time that have an opioid use disorder that we're prescribing Suboxone for on an ongoing basis. You know, we give them prescription for three to seven days, let them go out, you know, and get hopefully as quickly as possible, get them access to an outpatient clinic. So it's certainly well worth that to the patients. Our PAs and nurse practitioners still need, I think, 18 hours of education, and they're prescribing it only if their supervising physician has an X waiver. They cannot write a prescription for Suboxone if they're supervising doctor does not have that access. Well, Randall, it sounds like you're saying that physicians who have an interest in managing patients with this disease process have access to the treatment through online programs. But I think that many clinicians would say, you know, I'm just busy and I'm frustrated. And I'm just trying to get through my day. So what would compel a physician like that to learn all of this and get X waiver certified? If I look back in my past and how frustrated that I became at dealing with patients with addiction because I really had nothing to offer them except stop using and, you know, go out and try to get into treatment again, it was, I think I became frustrated because I didn't have anything to do. You know, I didn't really have anything to give them. And Suboxone is that something. It's become the standard of care for us. And I believe that my frustration decreases immensely by being proactive, being able to approach them with something they can do with options for them. They may not choose those options, 
But then I've done what I can do to say, look, this is something that I think is best for you and it's the right thing to do. And if they don't choose to do that, then I feel better. My frustration, my loss of emotional energy is less. My, my work day is better and easier because I've given them you know, a, a, the chance. I've given them hope. And it, they may not be ready today. Maybe it's tomorrow. Maybe it's next week, et cetera. But nobody has ever recovered from the grave. You know, so <laughs> you've got to, you know, except one person. So having them to go out and overdose, again, this is a great story, but I did talk to a patient and they said the greatest chance, likelihood that they have of dying was when they were treated in an emergency department after an overdose with Narcan. We sent them out into the parking lot. They called their dealer and said, look, I don't care what you've got. Bring it to the parking lot of the ED. I've got to have something now because I'm dope sick. And they said they would have taken anything that that dealer brought them without question, even if it had been a lethal dose of fentanyl. And that's who you're saving. That's what you're preventing by keeping them clear and keeping them out of withdrawal by giving them a chance with Suboxone. Wow, thank you. This has been one of the most clear presentations that I've heard on this really difficult topic. I, I appreciate this. Thank you. Very welcome. It's my pleasure. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining this podcast. My goal, as always, is to serve you by discussing topics that are important to you. Please let me know what is of particular interest by communicating to me through at beyondclinicalmedicine.org. Thank you. Thank you.